Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, happy Friday. Glad you're with us on the Three Martini Lunch. Thanks for all the great comments on uh, yesterday's program. It's good to know you all love Home Alone and Die Hard. We had one listener saying that they're going to watch both as a result of the podcast. So, hey, as long as you keep listening to the Three Martini Lunch, uh, we're good with that. <laughs> Jim, we finally made it to Friday. We don't even have to pretend today. Yeah, and uh, I think I feel like we earned it this week. <laughs> oh. Today we have good, bad, and crazy martinis. Let's start uh, with the good, although this is getting a lot of reaction from both sides here. We know what the Trump defense team is going to look like for the impeachment trial. We uh, heard Nancy Pelosi earlier this week name the seven House managers, led by Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler. Uh, But now, from the uh, New York Post and many other sources, uh, you've got, first of all, your White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, and the outside attorney, Jay Sekulow, who uh, are going to be taking the lead here, but also joining the team, Former independent counsel Ken Starr, who's got a little impeachment experience, but from the opposite perspective from the 90s and the Clinton impeachment. Robert Ray, who followed Ken Starr as the Whitewater uh, independent counsel. Alan Dershowitz, who has been all over cable news, uh, no fan of Trump personally or politically, but saying that uh, trying to remove him from office here is not constitutional. That's what his job will be on the Senate floor. And then uh, Pam Bondi, the former Florida attorney general, also on the team. So uh, some folks uh, suggesting this is uh, getting the dream team back together in some ways here, Jim, with uh, Ken Starr and uh, Alan Dershowitz. Uh, What do you make of this uh, uh, conglomeration of legal talent? I was going to say the only one who was actually on OJ's dream team was Dershowitz. That's true. Um, And I think it's safe to say that most conservatives do not have an instinctively bountiful, warm and fuzzy feeling when it comes to Alan Dershowitz, uh, particularly during kind of the the times that the Republican Party was more tough on crime. And Alan Dershowitz was always a very famous and very effective defense attorney. That having been said, I think most conservatives would agree game respects game. Um, and then when it comes to having a defense attorney, Alan Dershowitz is pretty darn good at this. Alan Dershowitz is pretty darn good at cross-examination. And obviously, Ken Starr, name a lawyer, <laughs> more familiar with how impeachment goes. So, my, you know, again, I don't think this is going to make a huge difference in terms of the voting of this. I think everybody knows what they thought of impeachment from the moment this process began. But to the extent you're going to have a trial, you want to have the best representation you can. And you want to put together, you want to poke as many holes in the argument of the prosecutors, in this case, the Schiff and Nadler and the whole impeachment team put together by Pelosi. And you want to trip up any potential witnesses they have. We'll come, this is kind of foreshadowing the next martini we have coming up. You want to put together the same, you know, the same arguments of like, well, look. Did you hear the president say that yourself or is that secondhand? How certain are you that this happened? How certain are you that his motivation was X and not Y? You could see Alan Dershowitz and Starr and then really the whole rest of them uh, really putting together this. And to the extent that the American people are paying attention to the trial, and by the way, I'm, I kind of think people are going to tune it out, but to the extent they do, this is probably going to be among the best you know, legal minds you can have to handle these kinds of questions to tear apart the credibility of witnesses and stuff like that. Um, you know, Trump will not be able to complain. He did not get adequate representation. Uh, I think people will sit up on this. It's interesting because I've heard rumors of this for a while. And I kind of looked at it and I said, well, on the one hand, uh, Dershowitz might want to do this as sort of a feather in a cap towards the end of his career. 
Um, what bigger stage in there is there? This guy's always enjoyed the spotlight. Um, but also, I think he generally believes in it. That I think you know, that whatever this is, you know, not a something that they, a president should be impeached over. Um, and so it might make this entire process, you know, uh, certainly it'll make it, you know, for a process that I, I laid out in today's jolt has no drama. Um, watching the cross-examination of the various witnesses, if they have witnesses, would actually be something interesting to watch. That's true. Uh, and, and you're right. Dershowitz is the only one from the Dream Team. No F. Lee Bailey and no uh, Robert Shapiro, uh, as far as we know at this point. Uh, I'm sure you've noticed on Twitter that a lot hey, of what fo- are the Kardashian offspring doing these days? <laughs> uh, I, I think Trump knows them. So. <laughs> they might be voting for Trump, uh, at least some of them. We'll see. Uh, but uh, what do you make of the uh, the backlash we're seeing now saying, well, uh, uh, Dershowitz is uh, alleged to be tied up. Uh, well, that's a bad way to put it, but uh, connected to Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> uh, and uh, Ken Starr uh, had to leave because of a scandal at Baylor. And now he's on the opposite side of where he was with uh, the Clinton impeachment. And even Monica Lewinsky uh, has uh, let it be known today, let's just say, in words we can't repeat in the three martini lunch, that she's not super impressed with that choice. So uh, is this just going to be consumed in a way that, uh, well, they're on Trump's side, so therefore I hate them or I love them? Yeah, I mean, so regarding Dershowitz, the, the allegations around uh, his connection to Jeffrey Epstein are, you know, they're they're bad. They're, there's no two ways about it. They're they're really you know unnerving if you know if true, but he hasn't been convicted of anything. And if there's anything Alan Dershowitz has always stood for is that you know innocent until proven guilty. Um, it does feel fair, you know. Again, if if he if he gets indicted, if this turns into a conviction, then this is a totally different story. And those of us who've never had particularly fond or warm feelings towards him will feel kind of vindicated by this. Until then, uh, these are merely allegations. They are not, you know, something you can say we can say for certain that he act, that he did. Ken Starr, the thing at Baylor, I don't know if that necessarily ties into the validity of the argument for or against Trump. Um, I, you know, it's not like. He himself was responsible directly for what was going on at Baylor. Uh, I think he may make the argument of, you know, sleep at the switch or something like that. I, I just think it's kind of interesting that the guy, you know, people will probably say, hey, wait a minute. You thought Bill Clinton should be impeached over this. You know, how can you possibly think that Trump shouldn't be impeached over this? And it'll be interesting to see how Starr lays that out. I think it does indicate, though, that, you know, Ken Starr is not, you know, people might argue him of being partisan, but he's also clearly not a, you know, knee jerk. Well, impeach him. You know, um, that he is a, you know, he, he's calling it as he sees it. And, his, you know, uh, as much as people didn't like it, I felt like back in, in 1998, 1999, Ken Starr did about as good a job as he possibly could have laying out the facts of his case and making his argument. You know, again, very much like this circumstance, I'm not sure there were too many senators who were really going into this with an open mind. Uh, very few. And that's why I love the fact that the media, who didn't care a, a lick about Democrats who had no intention of being objective jurors in the Clinton impeachment, uh, are now uh, having the vapors over the fact that uh, some Republicans have made up their mind. All the, all the Democrats, with the possible exception of a couple, have made up their minds, too. Believe me. All right, Jim, let's uh, go to our bad martini now. And this is related to impeachment. Uh, CNN asking a lot of different senators on Thursday as they walk through the halls of the Capitol Hill buildings as to whether they'd be open to uh, including newly discovered evidence, mainly the the documentation and the interview with Lev Parnas that we talked about yesterday and how that ties into what uh, the House is alleging against uh, President Trump. And the one getting the most attention, of course, is the one involving CNN's Manu Raju. 
Coming across, Arizona Senator Martha McSally and this exchange followed. Senator McSally, should the Senate consider new evidence as part of the impeachment trial? Man, you're a liberal hack. I'm not talking to you. You're not going to comment, Senator, about this? And so uh, CNN has uh, played that over and over and over again. Uh, The martyrdom complex there is quite strong, although I would argue that uh, Manu Raju is probably not one of the more stridently biased reporters on the Hill. But uh, nonetheless, uh, McSally is also fundraising off of this. And she went on Laura Ingram last night to talk about it. Do you regret what you said? Uh, no, Laura, I do not. And I said it again, actually, as I went in. I said, you're a liberal hack, buddy. As you know, I, I mean, these these CNN reporters, but many of them around the Capitol, uh, they are so biased. Uh, they are so in cahoots with the Democrats. They so can't stand the president. And they run around trying to chase you know, Republicans and ask trapping questions. I'm a fighter pilot. You know, I called it like it is. All right, Jim, a lot of hand-wringing on all sides here. What do you make of it? There's really nobody for me to root for here. Uh, <laughs> and I know this is going to irk certain you know, listeners who want to say, yeah, McSally's right. That Manu Raju's a jerk. No, I, I don't think he's a jerk. Uh, you know, I got some bones to pick here and there with this coverage. But I, I think generally he tries to just call it as he sees it and you know, report what's happening and, and quote people accurately. There, there are you know, one or two cases in the past where he's reported something and things did not necessarily pan out the way he does. I think he may have occasionally been used sort of as a transmission belt for certain Democratic sources. I, you know, there's there's bones to pick. There's beefs there. But the question, you know, do you want that's not do you want witnesses or how important is it do you have witnesses? These aren't gotchas. These aren't, you know, um, coming with a giant axe to grind or something like that. And Manu Raju talks to reporters all the time. And if somebody pointed out that, like, you know, the old, ironically, McSally is in John McCain's seat, right? And John McCain, if you asked him a stupid question, you know what John McCain would say? Stupid question. That's a stupid question. <laughs> no, that's a clown question, bro. That's, uh... <laughs> and so, you know, there are better ways to deal. So I don't really like her reaction, but then, and I don't like the, I don't like the fundraising off of it. But I also don't like the way CNN has now decided this is this is the greatest threat to the First <laughs> Amendment that anybody's ever seen. And, you know, and the worst assault on a on a reporter since uh, was it Gianforte who, who slammed body slammed the reporter. You know, this is just like when the Saudis executed Khashoggi, you know, calm down, people. Right? You know, it, this was an this was a, a, a rude snide moment of her. And, you know, and look, here's the thing. You never know. This applies to all people in all circumstances. You don't know what's going through their head and what what happened immediately before an exchange like that, right? I know what kind of day McSally's having. I don't know if this is the millionth time she's been asked it. Should you have said it? No. Would it be nice if she said, you know, I lost my cool that moment. I shouldn't have said that. I'd like to see that. I don't think this needs to be blown up any bigger. I don't like to see her fundraising, but I also don't like the idea of CNN has decided. Like if, if you watch CNN and or if you're on certain, you know, Twitter, this is the biggest thing that happened yesterday, right? McSally said something really snotty to Manu Raju. I think Manu Raju could take it. You're a reporter on Capitol Hill. You're going to get a lot of people... Okay, so David Enrich was my colleague at State's News Service. This is back in the early Bush administration, uh, George W. Bush. And he, one of his beats was the Youngstown Vindicator. The new congressman who represented Youngstown was uh, Jim Traficant. You probably remember him as that yes. guy who was, beam me up, Mr. Speaker. And he looked like he had a dead squirrel on top of his head. <laughs> anyway, Traficant 
was all, you know, was a heck of a lot of fun to cover because you never knew what he was going to say. He was a little bit crazy. Um, he was a Democrat, but he was kind of populist and, and you know, didn't mind working with the Republicans and didn't get along with the rest of the party very much. But I'm fairly certain at one point, and, you know, David Edrich may listen to this and correct me, I'm fairly certain at one point Traficant reached out and slapped him, not in a hard way, not in a, you know, but, but a playful, like, ah, what are you doing? You know, how, how, what kind of question is that? And, you know, he's like, he actually struck me. You know, so these things happen between lawmakers and reporters. I don't think David, you know, filed a complaint about it. It was just, you know, this is how things get on Capitol Hill sometimes. So, you know, tisk tisk, 50 lashes with a wet noodle. Don't do this, McSally. Certainly don't go fundraising for it. But CNN, come on, keep some perspective. We got bigger fish to fry. What we know from Martha McSally is she was not a Trump fan in 2016. And a lot of folks think that that may have hurt her in her Senate campaign against Kirsten Cinema that the base was uh, not enthused, uh, and Cinema ultimately ended up winning and wearing a cape sworn in for the impeachment trial yesterday. But uh, and so therefore she's got a tough re-election fight, although it's not really a re-election since she wasn't elected in the first place uh, against uh, Kelly in Arizona, the astronaut, the husband of Gabby Giffords, who's uh, already beating her in the fundraising game, and is probably the favorite to actually win that race. And so this, uh, after it happened, is a way to say, well, let's gin up a little bit of support from the base from this. I guess so. And again, I think that's kind of a, a cynical, opportunistic way of of dealing with what is a, you know, uh, what's something that doesn't doesn't need to be blown up into the, you know, media versus lawmakers, World War Three. Um, you know, maybe this, I mean, she feels like she's got to do this. I think it's a bad sign if a Republican senator feels the need to do this. And you're right, her polling really has been not all that pleasing you're kind of left scratching your head saying you know arizona well god you know this is barry goldwater's state this is always a traditionally very republican state and kind of appears to be drifting purple um maybe she thinks by being trumpy enough she'll you know if trump carries the state then then he'll carry her over the the finish line i think trump is more likely to finish to win the state but i don't know if it's quite the the guaranteed slam dunk his margin wasn't that high last time around um but again i just i just feel like everybody involved in this should be better than this that's certainly true. Would you wear a cape to an impeachment trial? <laughs> well, I, I'm a little disappointed. Apparently, Roberts isn't going to do the racing stripes that uh, Rehnquist did. <laughs> How often do you get to do the impeachment? Well, actually, these days, about every 15 years. Um, but, you know, the sort of thing, like if you're doing it, I'm going in there with, you know, with, with, a, with a staff uh, and, and high boots. And, you know, I'm, make sure your picture is going to be in that history book. <laughs> Oh, man. Senators have to stay silent, although some are saying they're going to live tweet it. So uh, that's a little different. They than... can't. They're not allowed to bring in phones. Oh, they're not. Well, no, there, there's nothing. You Because like everybody's at one point I said, you know, oh, you know, this is this huge advantage for Biden. And uh, assuming Biden doesn't get called as a witness uh, and Buttigieg, I'm sorry, Buttigieg, <laughs> since apparently I, I, I pronounce it too hardly for some some people, Michael Graham. Um, but the, the the observation there is, is somebody's like, well, you know, there's of course they're going to be uh, still in the news. You know, they're 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 on camera. One, I don't know how much. The, I assume it's all C-SPAN, so I don't know how much they'll be cutting to reaction shots from the senators who are watching this. But again, they can't say anything. They're not. They're being told not to talk to their to whoever's sitting to the left or to the right of them. You just sit there and be silent and listen. And I cannot imagine that's a terribly effective way. And, of course, they'll race back every night trying to do stuff in Iowa. But uh, this is not going to be the best of 11 days or however long it's going to last for uh, uh, Sanders and Warren and, I guess, Klobuchar and Bennett, too. <laughs> I think uh, Bennett is still running America. 
I can just imagine uh, Sanders and Klobuchar and Warren and Bennett uh, essentially going to the Republicans and going, you know, you got a good point. That Joe Biden needs to be here and he needs to be testifying for days on end. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I guess that would leave Iowa to Buttigieg. But uh, anyway, as you uh, as you go through watching the media and uh, all the political hand wringing and uh, the political correctness going on with impeachment and everything else, uh, obviously stick with the three martini lunch. We're your we're your one stop shop for that. But uh, another good podcast that is uh, just being launched from Radio America that can uh, give you some perspective from a female perspective, actually, is the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. Uh, Mock and Daisy are also known as Chicks on the Right. And every week on their podcast, it's a weekly podcast, they talk about everything from parenting to social media, political correctness and the importance of uh, marriage and family values. Uh, two women who are intelligent, they're funny, they're conservative. Uh, it definitely has a dash of politics. A lot of their uh, different conversations arise from what's in the headlines politically and otherwise, uh, but they take it in a lot of fun, different directions. So they believe if you really want to make America great again, you need to start in your own home. So find out more about the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast by going to chicksontheright.com or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting platform. All right, Jim, let's keep talking about the 2020 presidential race now. And uh, correct me if you've heard this logic before. You're running for president. There's a front runner right now, but it's a long way until the first votes. And you think, if I just wait long enough, that front runner's going to collapse and fade away. That's pretty much how Republicans looked at Donald Trump in 2016. A lot of them kept their powder dry, thinking he'll eventually implode. And I'll be there to collect all the people who think they support him right now. Well, he didn't implode. And uh, folks like Ted Cruz and others were forced to scramble and then go negative towards the end. It didn't work. Trump was the nominee. Back in 2012, a lot of people thought eventually Romney would fall. Wasn't conservative enough. A lot of people had their shot. Didn't happen. Santorum came the closest, but Romney was ultimately the nominee. Now it turns out a lot of Democrats are feeling that way about Joe Biden, according to a new story in Politico that says it took more than a year, but the Democratic presidential primary is finally coming to terms with the fact that Joe Biden isn't going to collapse before the first votes are cast. If anything, the landscape is tilting more in its favor. Biden's fundraising has improved, his polling is steadier, and his opponents barely touched him in the presidential debate on Tuesday, which we talked about on Wednesday. Uh, the, it was the final debate ahead of the Iowa caucuses. You got Sanders and Warren feuding now. A bunch of them, as we just said, have to stay in Washington for the uh, impeachment trial. And all of a sudden, Biden's sitting real pretty. Even if he gets edged out in some of these early states, he's still going to pick up delegates. And once you get to South Carolina and Super Tuesday, he looks to be in excellent position. So, uh, Jim, uh, how did he pull this off? And what do you make of the Democrats being shocked uh, that their front runner is actually going to be the front runner? Yeah, I go back and forth about whether I should be, you know, walking around strutting myself, strutting and saying, ah, I knew Biden was going to do mine because I've been fairly bullish on Biden's chances for a while now. But, I, you know, like anybody else, the first time I saw uh, Biden come out and in those first announcement videos and that first debate appearance, man, he he didn't look good. Right? He he looked kind of you know very, we're we're used to picturing him back when he was vice president, and it just kind of feels like in those couple of years, man, age caught up with him. Everything from his delivery, uh, people a lot of people said, oh, particularly the, uh, on the right, there was kind of this mentality of oh, Biden's starting to lose it. Uh, age is starting to set in, dementia, Alzheimer's, stuff like that. And if you watch him in the debates, I don't quite think that's it. Maybe the memory is not quite as sharp as it used to be. What Biden has in most of these bad debate moments and what, you know, where his answers turn into word salad, so to speak, is that he'll be start giving an answer 
And then while he's giving the answer, you can almost see some other point pop into his head and he jumps over to that one and he doesn't finish the first thought. And he jumps over to the second one, gets into that, tries to get back to the first point he was getting to, but actually he goes kind of a different avenue to a third point and his answers <laughs> just turn into this jumble of phrases and loosely connected ideas and points and arguments he wants to make. And by the end of it, you're just like, wow. So I, like everybody else, I saw the reasons to think, wow, that's Biden is not what he used to be. This is not going to be a smooth ride. And yet, I think what, what I picked up on fairly quickly and what I think a whole bunch of folks did not was that he had those lousy debate performances and generally his support stuck with him. And if so, my sense was that once people were on the Biden bandwagon, they weren't looking for an excuse to get off. They were only going to get off if they really needed to. And I said, it's still theoretically possible. It's sometime between now and when the nomination is determined or sometime between now and November. If, if Biden is a nominee, he could have a really bad moment. Um, I, I, we haven't, as far as I know, we haven't seen the full you know, physical results from his doctors or anything like that. You'd like to think that enough people around Biden, if he really was in trouble, if he really was starting to have, quote unquote, senior moments and, and you know, lose track of things and, and not. You know, that that people would say, OK, this man is not ready to be the next president of the United States um, and, and gently put, you know, push, pull him aside, pull Jill aside and say, look, we we you can't go ahead with this. We haven't seen that, which makes says to me that everybody around him believes he can handle the job, believes he's ready for the job. You know, in light of that, the voters haven't been looking for an excuse to jump onto somebody else. So that's why, you know, I, I had this offhand comment in, in the morning jolt today, Greg. Deval Patrick, when he jumped in, said he had a plan, said that he was he wasn't too late and he knew exactly how tough it was going to be. But don't worry, he's got a plan to get himself. Greg, have we seen the plan? I haven't even seen a second statement from Deval Patrick. Right. I mean, there's just kind of this sense of like whatever plan you had, it didn't work. And I don't know. Did you have plan B? <laughs> I mean, did you really understand how much tough it was going to be? So I guess the only thing that makes sense is that he and maybe Bloomberg and maybe a bunch of these other guys had this mentality of, okay, at some point Biden's going to stumble and that's going to put 30% of democratic voters up for grabs. And I'm going to be the one who decides to. And I think you could say a bunch of people kind of like, that's where they pushed all their chips into it. And Joe Biden didn't fumble it away. He didn't, have, didn't do great. And the other thing I kind of think of is the come out of this is I, I look. What are the advantage? You notice, like, oh my goodness, Bernie Sanders is so old and he's in, you know one of the leaders. Biden is so old; he's one of the leaders. Warren is seventy years old. Bloomberg is well into his seventies. You're like, how? Why are they, all these people so old? Well, if you've been around a long time, people develop an opinion of you. And I think at some point, it's like it's like writing in cement. Eventually, it hardens. And until you do something really dramatic to change people's opinion of you, they're going to if they like you, they're going to keep on liking you. I think people decided what they think of Joe Biden during Obama's presidency and particularly amongst Democrats. So they like him and it's going to take something really dramatic for them to not like him. It's kind of strange that so many Democrats who are in that party <laughs> could not think it. But, you know, Greg, maybe it's like that uh, the, the old joke. One fish goes by another fish and says, you know, boy, water's pretty chilly today. The other fish says. What's water? Because you don't realize you're in it. <laughs> exactly right. No, it's uh, it's fascinating to watch. And it's also fascinating. And, you know, we talked about the fact that nobody called Biden out on uh, the use of force in Libya, for example, without the congressional authorization. But uh, the two people that took the biggest swings at Joe Biden in these debates, Kamala Harris and Julian Castro, uh, ended up looking like Glass Joe on Mike Tyson's punch out because ultimately that really backfired on them. 
and uh, it just didn't uh, didn't create any traction. I th- and so I think following that, uh, the folks who are closer to the top and have more to lose if they take a big swing at him are a little bit more reluctant to do so. The one who took the 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 one who you could say most clearly backfired was Julian Castro. Oh yeah, and whatever chance Castro had probably died that night. Wasn't a great chance to begin with. Harris really did seem to score points on that first one, but she never really went after it. And of course, the next one, you know, Tulsi Gabbard vivisected her in front of a live audience. So there was nobody. It's very strange. Whatever attack you're going to put on Biden, you're going to have to do it eventually. And everybody seems to be waiting. I'm going to wait till it's just him and me, and then I'm going to unleash it. Um, And I just want to point out, if if that's the strategy, just ask Ted Cruz and John Kasich how that worked out. (laughs) You might never get to just him and you. You know, it's going to be fun to watch, uh, see what Biden does here, assuming he doesn't spend days on end at, in the in the U.S. Senate for this trial. Uh, Buttigieg will have a lot of time to himself. Tulsi Gabbard might go around challenging every Iowa voter to a push-up contest. I don't know. Uh, she did that in New Hampshire yesterday and actually won the push-up contest. So maybe she's the one who got challenged. But uh, I mean, whether she ends up as president, I think she could very much be on the uh, President's Commission on Physical Fitness, the old Schwarzenegger <laughs> yes. gigs. I think she's definitely well qualified for that. So, uh, Jim, on that note, have a great weekend and uh, see you Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. So glad you're with us on this edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a kind review. That will help us out a great deal. Have a wonderful weekend and tune in Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.